And we're going to be in Psalm 131, and I want to encourage you next week to come back. We're going to start a brand new series called Gods and Kings. I can't wait to see what Pastor Scott has in store for us as we look into the stories of Elijah and Elisha. And those were some miraculous stories in the Bible. So I can't wait for that. I want you to make sure you come back next week. Got it? Cool. Now, Psalm 131, we just got out of Psalm 23. And Psalm 131 is very, uh, very similar to Psalm 23. It's, very, it's, a, it's a song of confidence. It's a song of trust in God. It's a song of ascent, meaning everything, all the words of that song are being lifted up to God. The one that the psalmist, King David in this one, is confident in. Now, it's one of the shortest psalms too. Three verses, that's it, just three. But it is packed. It is loaded with a wealth of practical and biblical knowledge and gospel application for you and I. And so that's why I want to kind of go into this one psalm so that we can find a certain word that I think we all yearn for, contentment. Contentment. Merriam-Webster defines contentment as feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation. Like, when are you most content? When you're just hanging out, watching the kids play, and they're, like, not fighting? <laughs> it's kind of nice. Or after a nice holiday meal? Like, you didn't eat too much where you just feel, right? But, like, you ate just the perfect amount. You're like, man, all is right in the world and my belly. Right? What do you, what do you find contentment in? What is it? When are you most content? But, see, the problem is it never really seems to last, right? Right? That nice feeling in my belly goes away, and what do I have to do it again? i got to feed it again. As nice as my kids were playing and as nice as it was sitting outside watching them play, inevitably, someone fights, someone argues, contentment gone. I often wish I was in this consistent, continuous state of contentment. But it's a daily fight, isn't it? And it's one I often lose. Let's be honest. We lose that fight. See, worry, anxiety, doubt, fear, all that stuff like creeps in. I could be in the best contented state watching my kids, and then I read a news article about something going on in society. I'm like, oh, Lord, this is what my kids are growing up in. And now all of a sudden I'm worried about their future, their safety, their security. Are they going to trust and follow Jesus? Like all these things, and then it just robs the contented state that I was in. I think the question we really should ask is, why is contentment so hard to keep? Why is it so hard? Because I think we're asking the wrong question, right? Sorry, guys, this is like a new thing to me, and I'm like knocking it. Maybe it's because of the who that we're relying on for our contentment. Maybe it's the who. Because it seems like I rely on myself to make myself content. Maybe sometimes others, but if you're honest with you, yourself, as I am, I don't really trust others with my state of contentment. 
I don't trust that they're going to keep it up long enough as me. But guess what? I don't either. Neither do you. Psalm 131 was written by King David, and he learned how to be content. And we'll see that he found contentment in God and God alone. And what we're going to find out in this passage is that the contentment we're talking about is a much more profound state. It goes beyond just being satisfied, get this, to being complete. Complete. So if you're willing and able, I want to invite you in honor of reading God's holy word. As we read Psalm 131, stand with me. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. You may be seated. So we're going to unpack three things that we find in our passage regarding a contented heart or soul. And if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Here we go. A contented heart is humble before God. A contented heart is dependent on God. And a contented heart is hopeful in God. So let's look at how a contented heart is humble before God. Verse 1 is all about this humility, about being humble. It says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. See, in the first three verses, in the first verse, we see three renouncements by King David. Pride, arrogance, and then selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, prideful pursuit. And so David takes his first verse to talk about his place before God. Who is the source of his contentment, right? See, David has learned and expresses here that a humble heart is one that finds contentment in God. When he says his heart's not lifted up, he's saying, I'm not proud. He's learned to be humble. See, basically, is David's saying he's learned to rely. He's learned not to rely on himself for contentment. See, when we're proud, we're saying that our self is full, right? That our self is the only thing that matters. That our self is what is deserving of what it wants. So when we're proud, we're kind of just feeding the beast, right? We can never be satisfied or content if what we're always feeding always wants more and is always hungry. Right? When you're prideful, you're consumed with self. And yourself wants to consume it all. To find contentment. You're just feeding the beast when we're proud. I mean, be honest. We always want bigger, better, newer, right? There's always something new. There's always a new iPhone. There's always a new update. There's always a new app. There's always a more convenient thing, right? We always want just one more. We can never satisfy and be content with ourselves if we're the ones trying to fill it. I mean, pride puts ourselves in the center of not just our world, but the world of everyone else. You know, I used to say this joke growing up, and sadly, I thought it was funny, but it's not. But it's, you know, the world revolves around me. Look at it go. There it goes again. 
there it goes again. And I thought it was funny, but really, that's my core nature. My core nature says, I should be at the center of everything. And I'm not content until everything revolves around me, right? Talk about entitlement, right? Callousness towards others and everything around us. Pride puts us in place of where God should be. Pride replaces God with self. And we all fight, fight pride, right? That's our core battle, sin. It's, it's us versus God. It's, it's what we want or what he wants. Pride runs contrary to contentment. And that yourself can never be satisfied, never be content, never be complete with itself. You're always reaching, always striving, always yearning, right? So what is it that you're constantly working for? You may not even be aware that you're just working so hard for something just to make you feel content. Are you making yourself bigger by constantly trying to fill up with achievements, things, love, kids' achievements, money, all so you can hopefully be content and satisfied in yourself? Doesn't that sound exhausting? Doesn't it? You got to do it. It's just you. You're at the center of your world. You're at the center of everybody's world. Guess what that means? It's all up to you. Good luck, right? It doesn't work. See, Dave, David takes it further when he renounces arrogance. Verse 1, my eyes are not raised too high, meaning he's not looking down on others. And consequently, he's not looking up too high to be in God's place. Get that? Not looking too low, down on others, and not looking too high up where God should be. David's stating that his eyes don't look down on others. He's stating, I am king, but I'm not going to let my title affect how I associate and deal with others. See, arrogance takes pride and projects it onto others. A commentator by the name of Boyce says this. He says, arrogance is an expression of pride. It is the proud who are arrogant, but arrogance goes beyond pride in that it is pride looking down on other people. So this arrogance says that not only am I the only one that matters and is deserving of all it wants, but others are of less importance and less deserving than me. Arrogance is pride projected and affecting on others. The irony of arrogance, though, is it's self-isolating. Like, who here loves to be around arrogant people? No one ever said that ever, right? Not one of you raised your hand. Why? Why don't you like to be around arrogant people? I've yet to meet someone who loves to be around an arrogant person. It's because it's their pride that's being projected on you. <laughs> You're like, but I'm here too. <laughs> I matter too, don't I? An arrogant person's like, no. It's self-isolating in that it's, it's like arrogance tries to find contentment in minimizing others, 
But arrogance endlessly searches for contentment because the very thing it yearns for other people, it distances itself from. It's like the classic bully at school, right? The bully bullies because he craves and yearns for what? Attention, love. And bullying is the way that they know that they're gonna get it. But here's the thing, no bully ever stops bullying because they found contentment in it. They need to continue day in, day out, bullying, trying to fill that bucket of contentment. It's all on them over and over. Wash, rinse, repeat. It's exhausting. Lastly, in this first verse, David renounces selfish ambition and prideful pursuit. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He's stating that though God has set a path for him, a mighty great one, he will not strive beyond those boundaries. He will be content in the path God has for him, and he will be content knowing that God is the only one who knows all. See, David, I'm sure David knew he was going to be king. He had to wait patiently on God's plan, right? But he wasn't striving early. Countless times we see David could have done something to King Saul, but he did not. Because it was up to God's timing, not David's timing. You see, there's, there's this thing about selfish ambition. Because it's very misleading because it often disguises itself as a noble aspiration. Right? You think, oh, yeah, I, I should do that. That's a, that's a big deal. I really need to do this. Yeah. Yeah. The way we distinguish between selfish ambition, uh, a selfish aspiration, and a godly aspiration is who the focus is on. If you're saying, I should do that, I need to do that, I want to do that, guess what? Selfish ambition. Now, on the other hand, I'll give you a practical example from my wife and I. No one, no offense, but no one ever really wants to move from Florida to Indiana during the worst winter in decades, you guys told us. 2014, remember it? It started snowing the day we crossed the border. It didn't stop snowing till May. <laughs> I got a pregnant wife, two kids. She's in a two-bedroom apartment. Oh, one can't even walk in the snow because the snowsuit thing is just so bulky and he just <laughs> falls over. God called us out of that beautiful state. <laughs> called us from everything we, and everyone, and everything we ever knew and had, and just said, whoop, I want you here. Now, we could have fought that, but we didn't. We didn't want to. We wanted godly aspirations. We wanted to be content with what God has in store for us, what he had planned for us. Yeah, I could go on with that story over and over. <laughs> uh, do you know someone who's the master at working things in their favor to get what they want to the detriment of others? They scheme and sell an idea like it benefits others, but in reality, they're at the center of the benefit, not others. Everyone who has a kid knows exactly what I'm talking about. 
there's at least, if you have multiple kids, there's at least one who's a wheeler and dealer who makes the other kid think that kid's coming out pretty good. But in reality, he's the one that's making the bank. I gave it away. One of them's a he. <laughs> I got a she, though, as well. She's, she's pretty good, too. It's selfish. It just comes natural, right? Just like us. Ten times out of ten. Come on. If, if we could finagle something to our benefit, we'd be heavily tempted to do that, right? It's called loopholes. Loopholes doesn't sound as bad as selfish ambition, though, right? <laughs> at the end of the day, our core nature firmly believes and desires to be at the center of everything. And a heart that's not humble will always get this scheme for itself. Not caring about others, let alone God. See, a humble heart denies itself and relies on God's timing, place, and provision. A humble heart does not seek and aspire beyond which has been allotted by God. See, in this verse, David's also stating he's learned that there are things he will never be able to know and trust God with those things. Things too marvelous for me. The Hebrew in that literally was referring to the miraculous works of God. So David is saying, God, you know far more than I ever will, and I'm going to trust you with your knowledge. I'm not going to ask for your knowledge. Raise your hand if you know a kid that firmly believes to, that they need to know everything. Every parent raises their hands, right? You get a phone call, your kids, who was who that on the phone? What do they want? They called me, not you. I'm doing a little work. Hey, Dad, what you doing? Quit reading my emails. They're mine. Mine. Daddy, what are we doing tomorrow? Where are we going? Well, if I told you, then I'd have to kill you. No, just kidding. No, but, and every parent knows, you don't tell them, right? Because inevitably something happens, plans have to get canceled, and then they're like, ah, you said so. Knowledge is not always great. Trust God with God's knowledge. <laughs> a humble heart readily admits and believes that it'll, it'll never know everything. And it's content in this state. A humble heart relies on the one who does know everything. And it's the humble heart that is content in relying on the one who knows. The humble heart doesn't need to know all things because it is content in God who owns and knows all things. But you and I struggle with this aspect of humility, right? Right? It's in the three-letter word. Why? Why, God? Why can't I get married? Why can't we have kids? Why am I diabetic? God, why'd you move us up here in the middle of a frozen tundra? Why? Why didn't I get the promotion? I deserved it. It's a constant struggle, and the more we ask it, get this church, the less content we are. The more you ask why, the less content you become. 
I'll give you two examples that I readily speak of because God uses them mightily in my life, so I share them with you. When we had our first miscarriage and when I was diagnosed with diabetes, man, I played that why game. I mean, asking why is okay once, right? But the more you ask it, the less you trust. The more you ask it, the less content you are. And it's finally just this brick, just Holy Spirit brick. Boom. God, I'm not trusting you. You want to ask me why he gave me diabetes? Why we had a miscarriage? Two, in fact. I don't know. And I'm okay with that. Because I know God's using it for his glory and good. I'm trusting in the promises of God. And I'm not needing to know the answer to that awful question. Why God? So this first verse is packed full of humility. And it talks about how much our self can never be content with itself. It's in this learned humility that we find contentment, church. See, not only is a contented heart humble before God, but a contented heart is dependent on God. And we find this in the second verse. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This verse is so good. The imagery here is outstanding, right? It, it just, it doesn't depict God just in parental imagery. It's one of a few times in the Bible where God is actually shown through maternal imagery. It's very appropriate, actually, when you think about it. When you think about dependence and contentment, maternal imagery is spot on. See, a, a calm and quiet soul is the one that is finding satisfaction and contentment in God, not self. Think about it. When you were a child and you got hurt, and if you were blessed with being raised with a mother, who did you run to most of the time? Your mom. I have six kids. When they get hurt, I mean 95% of the time, mom! I'm, I'm like right there. Boosh! There's something about a mother's touch. There's something about a mother's nurturing, about a mother's love, about a mother's care and concern. And King David got it absolutely right when he's using this imagery to describe our faithful God. The mother nurtures and nourishes the baby. And so early on, the child learns care, love, and provision from her mom. But notice the imagery here is of a weaned child, not a weaning child. You see, the process of weaning is a tough process. It's the first battle your baby ever had with self. Think about it. The weaning process was their first rub against finding contentment in themselves. A weaning child struggles and fights for satisfaction and is not content until she gets what? Milk. 
She's not content until she gets what she wants. Everyone knows in the store when your baby is hungry. Right? And poopy and tired. But those are all things that the baby wants, right? Or wants to get rid of. And they're screaming, bloody murder for you. See, a weaned child is no longer nursing. She no longer fusses and screams for her mother's milk. The weaned child is content to be close to her mom, knowing and trusting in her mom for provision, love, and care. She's been weaned from the very first thing she loved, her mother's milk. And all of the weaned child's efforts now for her first love, get this, have ceased. Yet her dependence on her mother is still there. She's dependent upon her mother to provide for her, to protect her, to love her. And it's in this dependence on her mother that the weaned child finds contentment. Is there anything better than a child content in the loving arms of its mom? No. There have been some times where I've had my child and we've just had a long day and gone out. There's just something about a child just snuggling up to the parent, to the mom, not asking for anything, just wanting to be close to mom. Calm, quiet, content, not lacking a single thing in life. But what's David saying that he's weaned from? That we need to be weaned from? He's been weaned from dependence on self. It was in the first verse. That's why he spent that verse chalked with humility. He is dependent on God, desiring to be close to God, trusting God will provide protect and care and love and all the other things that amazing God the Father can do and does for you and I. So the question I have for you is what is it that you need to be weaned from besides self? There are other things we flood our life with contentment, trying to get contentment from. What is it that you need to be weaned from? What's that missing piece in your life that you think will make you content and perfectly, utterly satisfied? Now, it's important to note here that the Hebrew word for, for weaned is complete. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. I am complete in the arms of God the Father. So when David is stating he is like a weaned child in the arms of God, he's saying, I am complete. And if you're complete, are you lacking anything? No. Not one thing. Complete. Oh, how this world how this word is what our culture and world want right now, right? Complete. If I change my pronoun or gender, then I will be content. I'll be complete. If, if, if my political party stays in office or if my political party gains back office, whatever, then I will be content. Then I'll be complete. If I pursue my truth, 
Then I will find contentment and be complete. Church, your version is awful. Your version of truth is awful. Let that sink in. There's this author and professing Christian, sadly, who feeds into this concept and writes a, a, a brand new book on it. Her name's Rachel Hollis, and unfortunately, many Christians are buying what she's selling, which isn't contentment. What she's selling is salvation and contentment with self. Here's what she says. She says, the real you, the real you, is destined for something more. Your version of more. Let's just stop right there. What is your version of more? Half? Whole? Five billion? Different? <laughs> your version of more. This is who you were made to be, and the first step to making that vision a reality is to stop apologizing for having the dream in the first place. The world revolves around me. Like Lady Gaga says, baby, you were born this way. No, you weren't. You were born a sinner in need of a savior. <laughs> but you were not born to find your own truth, to live your own version of truth. If everybody did that, there's no such thing as truth. <laughs> Depending on yourself to create your version of complete, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And it breaks my heart and it should break yours that many people are buying into this. Christians, Christians. Our passage clearly states a content heart is utterly dependent on God. And in that dependence on God and not ourselves, we are weaned. We are complete. So we see a contented heart is humble before God, is dependent on God. But get this, a contented heart is also hopeful in God. Verse 3, he closes it out. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Church, what sliver of contentment will we ever find if our only hope in life is ourself? If my only hope is myself, oh, there's no hope. David writes this beautiful song to the nation of Israel that they may hope in God, that they find contentment because of God. Charles Spurgeon writes, See how lovingly a man who is weaned from self thinks of others. David thinks of his people and loses himself in his care of Israel. It's the child of God who has been weaned from himself that can now appropriately exhort others to do the same. You see, a hopeless person is one who is being hopeful in themselves to find contentment. A hopeful person is one who has put their hope in God and God alone. And it's the hopeful person who finds contentment, complete and perfect satisfaction. For those of us out here this morning who know our hope is found in Jesus Christ alone, I pray you encourage others to find the same hope and contentment. Now I want to end sharing a special story of uh, someone you may have heard of. Her name's Nightbird. Anybody heard of her? Yeah, if you watch America's Got Talent, 
She was one of the awesome ones. How about that, right? Um, and I don't have a picture of her. You can, you can look her up. Um, I do have a quote in a minute. We'll, we'll share that. But she, um, she's fought cancer two times, beat it two times, third time came back, and it's all over. And in this five-year process, her husband divorces and walks out on her. It's heartbreaking. I can't imagine. And she describes this scene in a blog where she says, God is on the bathroom floor. And she uses that imagery to explain how sick she was going through treatment on the bathroom floor, but God was meeting her there on the bathroom floor. And this is, this is the quote that she says. I want to lay in a hammock with him, with God, and trace the veins in his arms. How, how many of you did that with your mom growing up? Did you ever trace her veins? And then she kind of got self-conscious because they were like popping out for you to trace them. Imagine that image. Laying in a hammock with God, just tracing the veins in his arms, Guys, this is someone who could be laying in a hammock begging for healing. Begging for her husband to come back. Begging, pleading, asking why, why, why. And what she's saying is, no, I just want to be close to you, God. I just want to be close to you. Resting, calm, quiet, enjoying being close to God. Not asking, not begging, nothing. Just being close. Is that what you want? See, the Bible's clear that sin separates us from God. And so you can't be close to God if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is Jesus speaking. No one comes to the Father except through who? Jesus. There's a reason. The cross is like the bathroom floor. It's it's like humanity's bathroom floor. In the muck and disgustingness of life, God came down in flesh. His perfect son did a perfect work for you and I. You you see, we can't find contentment without the work and love of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. He bore the weight of all of our sin. He bore the immense weight of all of our pride. All of it. And he gave himself freely to take the punishment that was reserved for you and me. Also, we can find contentment and rest in God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, our Lord and Savior. So the question is this. How can you truly rest and find contentment in yourself when your arms are constantly and tirelessly reaching for more? Rest in the arms of the one whose arms are reaching out to you. Be content in the arms of the one who did the perfect work. Be calm and quiet in the arms of the one who 
completes you. I know several of y'all got a movie reference as soon as I said that. Be honest. I love my beautiful bride. But I would be selling my version of truth if I said she completes me. Christ completes me. What is it that you need to let go of, church? What is it that's weighing you down, dragging you down, that you're, you're carrying so hard, so long, because you think that this will give you contentment? And in reality, it's just weighing you down, stuck in the mud. What is it that you're hoping will give you just that perfect contentment? Are you tired? Do you feel incomplete? Could it be that you feel hopeless because you're not content? Here's the encouraging thing, church. Get this. Hope and contentment have a beginning. It's in verse 3. Put your hope in the Lord from this time forth, right now, and forevermore. There is a beginning. There can be a beginning for hope for contentment for you. My prayer is that for those of you who have not trusted in Jesus will do so and in turn become a child of God. And my prayer for those of us who are children of God will become weaned children, complete and content in God alone. Let's pray. Father God, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing knowing how messy and ugly each of us are. How selfish and how we desire for more, God. And what you're saying to us is, you just need to want me. God, I pray that for those of us struggling right now and who are just having a hard time and asking you the hard questions, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will give them peace to trust you with the results, to trust you with the answers, even if you don't give them one. God, I pray for someone out here today who needs to turn and trust in your beautiful son, Jesus. God, I pray that they will come talk to one of the elders and pastors up front. God, I pray that they will, they will find a way to talk, that they will find the way to be close to you. God, we're bogged down with so much garbage in this life. God, thank you that you meet us in this garbage. God, thank you that you have provided a way for us to find contentment, to find hope, to find rest and be complete. God, you are an amazing father. And God, I pray that our heart's desire is just to lay in a hammock, being close to you, tracing the beautiful blood veins of your hand. God, thank you. It was your blood that was shed for us. God, help us to trust, help us to believe. And it's in your beautiful son's name, Jesus, we pray.